Uh, good morning to each one. Let's turn in our Bibles to John 14. If you use the notes provided on one of the clipboards or in the bulletin, let me just warn you that I'm going to deviate a little bit from those notes this morning, just to give you a heads up so nobody yells out in the middle of the service, hey, you missed something, I know I've missed it, it's okay, no need to let me know. Uh, John chapter 14, let's, let's take the time to read again from the first verse, and I'd like to read for you all the way through to verse 26. So reading in John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you will know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, my Father, and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. 
Now, if you have read uh, Pilgrim's Progress, let your, let your minds uh, wander back to Brian's class perhaps some months ago or to your own reading of that book. And remember that scene in particular when Christian and hopeful, Christian and hopeful were walking side by side on the narrow way, on the narrow path, heading toward the celestial city. Uh, they've just passed through a time of blessing. They've just come through a, relatively speaking, a, a time of ease. But the, the way, the path begins to grow increasingly uh, difficult. And they're tired. Uh, they're weary. They're worn out. And their feet are hurting. And the path is uh, exceedingly difficult. But all of a sudden, Christian spies a meadow on the other side of the wall. And it appears that the meadow runs parallel with the path. And so he suggests to Hopeful, why are we here laboring on this difficult path? All we need to do is climb over the wall. We can walk in that pleasant meadow at ease and still keep one eye on the path. And so the two of them climb over that wall. They begin to walk in the field, what is called actually by path meadow. But soon the sky darkens. Soon the rain falls. Soon the way grows treacherous. And by morning they are completely lost. Who finds them? Giant despair. And giant despair gets his grip on them. He taunts them. He abuses them. He captures them. And then he imprisons them in Doubting Castle. All hope is gone. And they are Christian and hopeful languish day after day. Their, Their predicament is so desperate that they actually get to the point where they contemplate taking their own lives. They contemplate committing suicide. They are in the grip of giant despair. They are in the dungeon of doubting castle. All is bleak. All is dark. They're in a state of despondency. But they decide to spend the night in prayer. And as the dawn breaks, as the morning breaks, Pilgrim remembers something. And listen to the words, the statement that Pilgrim makes as that morning breaks, having spent the night in prayer, he cries, What a fool am I, what a fool am I, to lie in a stinking dungeon when I might walk at liberty. I have a key in my pocket called promise. That will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. And so with that key called promise, they free themselves from Doubting Castle. They free themselves from giant despair. And they soon find themselves once again firm-footed, sure-footed on the narrow way. Here's the thing. We all in this room struggle with despair. We all in this room struggle with despondency. There are a number, number of reasons for this. Let me, let me suggest a few at the outset this morning. First of all, at times, some of us 
struggle with despair because, because of our own downright carelessness. That's what happened to Christian and Hopeful. They had no one else to blame but themselves. They were on the narrow way. They knew where they were going. They knew what evangelist had told them to do to stick to that way. Oh, but it was becoming so difficult. There was no end in sight. And there there was that meadow which was so appealing to the flesh. And so before they know it, they're climbing over the wall. And how like them we are. The Christian journey is not a bed of roses, is it? The Christian journey is a marathon. A grueling test of endurance. But how easily we compromise at times. Oh, it would be, it would just be so much easier if I could do that. It would just be so much easier if I could cease from doing this. And we compromise. And the moment we compromise, we think, oh, no big consequences. Uh, the sky didn't fall. No terrible results. But invariably, invariably, that departure from the way leads to despair as it leads us further and further away from Christ. So at times, yes, we find ourselves in the clutches of despondency and we have no one else to blame but ourselves because it has arisen from our own compromise and carelessness. But there are other times, other occasions when despair arises from discouragement. Things have not gone as planned. Uh, life has not turned out as envisioned. Uh, we, we, had, we had these grand ideas, these grand designs of what life would look like, what our lives would look like in particular. The years pass by, the decades roll on, and, and, and reality, what is, is far removed from what was expected. Uh, what was envisioned. And discouragement sets in. And no sooner has discouragement set in than despair has arisen. But for other, others of us, at times we find ourselves in the depths of despair because of affliction. Uh, the loss of a spouse. The loss of, of any loved one. A dashed dream. A uh, dashed career. A debilitating illness, a broken friendship, that things have arisen in life, things that we, could, we, we would change in a moment if we could, but we're powerless to change them. We, we feel that they are beyond our control because they are beyond our control. And as we think about these things and ponder about these things, we begin this downward spiral into the depths of despair. And for the others of us, on occasion, this doubt and despair arises from opposition. Uh, we live in a hostile world. We live in a society in which it is increasingly difficult to be a Christian. Not because we fear outright persecution and imprisonment, but, but because, because we know we live increasingly in a society which at its very foundation is opposed to all that is God-like. It's difficult. Oh, it wears on us. It drains us. It zaps us, saps us of all energy. And as, we, and as we live with this day in and day out, again, we become victims so easily of discouragement 
of despair and of despondency. And when we, when we get ourselves, when we find ourselves in that situation in which Christian and hopeful found themselves in, in, the, in, in the grasp of, of giant despair and in doubting castle, we begin to spin our wheels, don't we? This analogy may not mean anything to you, but, but back in Peterborough, I, I can remember those times in the, in the dead of winter when, when you, you parked your car on packed snow and you go out and more snow has fallen and there's ice and other things, and you go in, you, find, you start your car, and what happens? You put it in reverse or forward, whatever direction you want to go in, and the wheels just, they just spin. And you can get that accelerator up to 100, you're not going anywhere. It will just spin and spin and spin, and you need to get out of the car, you need to dig away the snow and ice from the tires, you put down the salt, not the table salt, if that's what you're picturing, but that unrefined salt and sand, and the, everybody's out of the car, other people are coming, and they, they start to sway that car back and forth, back and forth, until it finally gets out of that, out of that rut. But there we are, spinning our wheels, in that endless cycle of despondency, and despair. What was the solution? What was the answer for Christian and hopeful? They had it with them all the time. It was on his person the entire time he languished in the in Doubting Castle. It was a key called promise. Promise. And there we have the answer to whatever causes our despair and despondency. We find it in one place. One place alone, a key called promise. And what we're going to do today, and Lord willing, what we will do next Sunday, is meditate upon six precious promises found in the passage which I read for you this morning. Six precious promises from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. These promises are a key sitting in our pockets. Whether or not we decide to use that key, that's, that's our business, is it not? But they are there nevertheless in holy writ. Christ himself, the Son of God, has given them to us. We possess them, whether we use them to our advantage, whether we grasp them to unlock those doors, those chains, which bind us down is another matter entirely. But we are going to ponder and meditate upon and think about these precious promises today and again next Lord's Day. For now, we're going to try to get through three of these promises. The first is simply this. We considered it somewhat last Sunday. It's found in verse 3 of our text. Christ promises to come for us. Follow along as I read again from verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Christ promises to come again. Uh, we know, praise God, that he comes for us 
when we die. At the moment of death, the soul ascends to heaven and we are with the Lord. The body is laid in the grave, awaiting that final coming, the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, when our glorified body will be reunited with our glorified soul. And we will live for all eternity in that blissful state, basking in the radiance of the glory of God. Uh, Richard Baxter, when he was 35 years old, uh, thought he was going to die. He had a, an unbelievable physical collapse, no other way of expressing it. He believed he was on his deathbed. He believed his days were numbered, and as he, as he was lying on his deathbed, what he thought, he didn't die, he did recover, but as he was lying on his deathbed, he began to prepare himself for the hereafter. And he began to meditate upon heaven as, as depicted in Scripture. And he began to think of what it will mean to enter into the presence of Christ and to be with his Lord and Savior for, for all eternity. And, and once he had recovered, he began to pen those meditations and produced a book called The Saints Everlasting Rest. In all likelihood, the best book on heaven that has ever been written in the history of the church. As he, as he reflected on what the Bible had to say about that eternal state, And as he contemplated it and meditated upon it, he wrote these words. I shared them with you last Sunday. Let me share them with you again. Christian, believe this. Believe this. And think on it. You will be eternally embraced in the arms of that love which was from everlasting. And that will extend to everlasting. Of that love which brought the Son of God from heaven to earth, from earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to glory. That love which was weary, hungry, tempted, scorned, scourged, buffeted, spit upon, crucified, pierced. That love which did fast, pray, teach, heal, weep, sweat, bleed, die. That love will eternally embrace you. He is coming for us. That is a great and glorious and precious promise. In Romans chapter 18, verse 18, Paul writes, I consider, and please listen attentively to these words, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What does it mean to consider? Consider means to to use our our process of of reasoning and, and arriving at a conclusion. And so Paul uses his process of reasoning, his power of reasoning to arrive at a conclusion. And what he does is he places over here his present suffering. All that he is going through, all that he has gone through, that persecution, that rejection, that pain and suffering, he puts it right there, has it clearly in view. 
And then over here, he places that future glory that awaits him. And he considers, he weighs, and he arrives at a conclusion. We do that sort of thing all the time, don't we? Uh, A young couple wants to have children. That young woman, on the one hand, weighs what it will mean to carry that child for nine months. What it will mean to give birth to that child. And yes, that, that, is, that takes a great toll. Yes, that requires great commitment. Yes, there is a measure of pain in that. But over here, she weighs what it will mean to have a child. And what it will mean to have a child far outweighs any pain, any suffering that that pregnancy might cause. And in the final analysis, there's, there's no comparison, is there? Where that athlete thinks to himself over here, boy, I want to win the U.S. Open or I want to win the Super Bowl. Or I want to win that gold medal. Here's what it's going to cost me for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. This is going to be a grueling regiment. Early to bed, early to rise. This is going to mean, uh, in terms of my appetite, my exercise, this is going to be painful. The blood, the sweat, and the tears, and the agony. But over here, what does he have in view? The prize. What it is he is striving for. And he considers... With his faculty of reason, he compares and he arrives at a conclusion that this is not worth comparing to this. This is what I want. And I'm prepared to make the sacrifice. I'm prepared to suffer. I'm prepared to count the cost. This is, in effect, what Paul is saying in Romans 8.18. He says, yeah, on the one hand, over here, I'm fully aware of what I've gone through and what I am going through. This Christian journey is exceedingly difficult. You think of the life Paul lived. You think of the suffering the man experienced far exceeding anything we have ever been through. And yet he considers. And over here he places that future glory that awaits him. And as he compares the two, he does not simply conclude that his future glory is twice as great as his present suffering. He doesn't simply conclude that the future glory that awaits him, all that is prepared for him in heaven, an eternity with his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is a hundred times greater than his present suffering. He doesn't even conclude that that future glory That kingdom that he will inherit, that purity of heart that will be his, that beatific vision that awaits him is a thousand times greater than his present suffering. What is the man's conclusion? That my present suffering isn't even worthy to be compared to that future glory that awaits me. That's the promise, brothers and sisters. The promise that awaits us as Christians. The Lord Jesus is coming again. It will usher in eternal bliss. In comparison to which, the present causes of our despondency and despair and suffering will pale in comparison. No, I wish I was a poet sometimes. I'm not a poet, not in the least. But I wish I had a poet's pen, the likes of Richard Baxter or the likes of John Piper. He sometimes dabbles in poetry, and I brought one of his poems along this morning. Bask in this. 
he writes, I knelt to drink and knew that I was on the brink of endless joy. And everywhere I turned, I saw a wonder there. The blind can see a bird on wing. The dumb can lift his voice and sing. The diabetic eats at will. The coronary runs uphill. The lame can walk. The deaf can hear. The cancer-ridden bone is clear. Arthritic joints are lithe and free, and every pain has ceased to be. And every sorrow deep within, and every trace of lingering sin is gone. And all that's left is joy. And endless ages to employ, the mind and heart to understand, and love the sovereign Lord who planned, that it should take eternity to lavish all his grace on me. O God of wonder, God of might, grant us some elevated sight of endless days. And let us see the joy of what is yet to be. And may your future make us free and guard us by the hope that we, within the light of candle four, are glorified forevermore. Have you ever heard that little ditty? You're too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. It's actually rubbish. It doesn't make any sense at all. You're too heavenly minded to be of earthly good. The opposite is true. We're never of any earthly good until we are heavenly minded. Our minds must be set on what is coming. Our minds must be set on the reality of eternity. We will never Persevere in the midst of tribulation without being heavenly minded. We will never accept the loss of material possessions unless we are heavenly minded. We will never be zealous for the salvation of souls apart from being heavenly minded. We will never devote ourselves to the means of grace without this heavenly mindedness. We will never discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness without being heavenly minded. We will never strive to mortify sin without being heavenly minded. We will never rise up from the pit of despair without being heavenly minded. It is a key sitting in our pocket. A key that Christ our Savior himself has given us. That we might set our minds on things above and not things below. That we might emulate the example of the Apostle Paul. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's the first precious promise in these verses. Christ promises to come for us. The second promise is found in verse 12. It's simply this. Christ promises to do great works through us. John 14, verse 12. Take another glance at that verse with me. Christ declares, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. Because I am going 
to the Father. What does he mean? Turn back to John 5 for the answer. All the way back. John chapter 5, where the Lord Jesus heals that lame man beside the pool of Bethesda. He embarks on a wonderful discourse. And in the 20th verse of John 5, listen to what he says. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Greater works than these, Christ says he will do. Greater works than what? He has just fixed his gaze on a man who has been, blo- who has been lame for years. He has told him to get up, pick up his pallet and walk. The man has obeyed. There we see this going forth of divine power. There we have this tremendous sign, this tremendous miracle. And yet Christ says, look, yes, that is a great work, but I'm going to do greater works than these. Verse 21, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. It's his work of salvation, isn't it? It's his work of conversion, that work of regeneration, imparting life to his people. And now return with me to John 14, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. This work of conversion, this work whereby I'm saving my people, you will participate in it. But understand this, the rest of verse 12, greater works than these. Not in terms of quality, but quantity. Greater works than these will he do. Why? Because I am going to the Father. And when I go to the Father, the Father and I are going to send the Spirit. And this this baptism of the Holy Spirit will take place on the day of Pentecost. And through the Spirit, I will continue this great work of calling forth my people, saving my people. You're going to do this great work with me. Not only that, you're going to do greater works because this is a work that will carry on throughout the centuries. And numerically speaking, when you think of the salvation of my my people, all of these men and women throughout the history of the church, we have here this great work rooted in an ascended Christ, ministering through the Holy Spirit in the lives of people like you and me. Greater works than these we will do. It's two obvious implications. The first is this. It means Christ builds his church. It means Christ builds his church. Turn over with me to the book of Acts. Just follow along as I read a few verses from Acts. These verses are key because they unlock somewhat the flow of Luke's account of the early days of the church. Begin with me in Acts chapter 2 verse 47. Again, that's Acts 2.47. Luke writes, praising God. This is what the early believers were doing. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Over now to chapter 5. Verse 14. And more... Than ever 
believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. Over with me now to chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Turn with me now to chapter 12. Just two more references. Chapter 12, verse 24. A pithy little statement tucked away here. Chapter 12, verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And now for the last. Chapter 19, verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That is the history of the church, brothers and sisters. That is this greater work that Christ from the right hand of the Most High carries on through His people. We see that the church withstands the arrest of Peter and John shortly after the day of Pentecost. We see that it withstands Ananias' and Sapphira's deception. It withstands Stephen's martyrdom. Simon's wickedness, James' martyrdom, the Jews' opposition. It withstands Paul's and Silas's imprisonment. It withstands the ridicule of Greek philosophy. It withstands the opposition of Rome. It withstands the deaths of Paul and Peter and the other apostles. It withstands the heresies of the early church, Montanism, Arianism, Pelagianism. It withstands the sacramentalism of Roman Catholicism. It withstands the Ottoman Empire. It withstands Arminianism and Socianism. It withstands communism. It withstands the attack of higher criticism. It withstands the onslaught of liberal theology. It withstands modernism. It withstands postmodernism. Surely, over the past 2,000 years, we have seen the truth of Christ's own words. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's the work we're involved in. Derive any encouragement from that? I don't know. It just kind of, for me, lifts life out of the ordinary. You know, just an average Joe getting up at seven, home at five, doing my thing. No, brothers and sisters, we are involved in a great and glorious work. And what a precious promise is ours that Christ is performing this work from on high by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. It means Christ builds his church. Secondly, it means Christ blesses his people. He blesses his people as we, by the Spirit, perform this great work. If I remember correctly, there is only one miracle of the Lord Jesus that is recorded in all four gospel accounts. It's the feeding of the 5,000 with the five loaves and two fish. And there in Matthew's account in chapter 14, we have the following statement. Now Christ gave the, the bread and the fish to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. Extremely significant statement. A Christ performed the miracle. And yet he dispensed the blessing of that miracle through whom? Through his people. 
through men as insignificant as these fishermen and tax collectors and Luke, you know, later a doctor and other men throughout the history of the church. He has used the most feeble, the weakest instruments to perform this great and mighty work. People like you and me, I'm encouraged by that. I'm encouraged when I remember the likes of I remember the likes of Moses standing there at the burning bush. And he has I, I go to Exodus three a lot. There's tons tucked away in Exodus 3. And there Moses stands at that burning bush and uh, he has the conversation with the Lord. And God wants him to return to the land of Egypt to lead the Israelites out of Egypt back to the promised land. And this conversation, this dialogue goes on. And in the midst of it, God asks Moses, what is that in your hand? Do you remember that? Seemingly insignificant, extremely significant. It's a staff. It's a stick. Found it a couple decades back up on the other side of the hill over there. And I trimmed off the branches, lopped a little piece off the top. And uh, it's, it's well worn now. It fits real nice in my hand. And uh, on occasion, I've used it to defend the flock. And on those hot summer days, I, I lean up against it. And those cold winter nights, I... I use it and sort of fall into a doze. It's just a staff. It's a stick. It's a piece of wood. Throw it down. And what does the staff become? A snake. Follow the history of that staff, brothers and sisters, all the way to the Ark of the Covenant. Something so seemingly insignificant. Something so seemingly trivial in the hands of Almighty God. Gives me hope. Hope it gives you hope this morning. Or you think, I made, I made reference to it this morning, you think of David. This is the point of the story of David and Goliath. As David is sent by his father Jesse to see how the war is going between the Israelites and the Philistines, and he, and he approaches and he hears Goliath's taunt. He hears Goliath ridiculing the, 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 the armies of the Lord. And David wants a crack at him. Saul isn't thrilled. Eventually he comes around, but he says, David, here's my armor, put it on. This armor, no use to David. No, it'll, it'll just inhibit me. And so what does David do? He goes down to that brook. He collects his five little stones, only needed one. And with one little pebble and his slingshot, the boy lays flat the giant. What's the lesson? One stone, seemingly insignificant. One silly little boy, a blip on the eternal radar in the hands of Almighty God. That's the promise, brothers and sisters. Greater works than these you will do. Not because there's anything particularly special about me and you, but because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is enthroned in majesty at the right hand of his Father. And he has sent forth the Spirit of God and performs this great and mighty work among men. J.B. Lightfoot writes, If ever I have been disposed to repine at my lot, in other words, if ever I have been inclined to despair and succumb to despondency, if ever I have left my, felt my cross almost too heavy to bear, yet now, now when I contemplate the lavish wealth of God's mercy, now when I see all the glory of bearing a part in this magnificent work, my sorrow is turned to joy. There's another little key we have sitting in our pockets. A wonderful promise from our Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
that greater works than these we will do. The third promise is this. It's found in verses 13 and 14. Christ promises to answer our prayers. Verse 13 reads, Whatever you ask in my name. No blank check here. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will, I will do it. I will do it. Now the, the question we should be asking, what, what we should want to know is this. Well, well what, what does it mean to ask in Christ's name? Right? That's obvious. What does it mean to pray in Christ's name? It doesn't mean we simply tack Christ's name onto the end of our prayers. Well, well, I ended my prayer in the name of Christ. Therefore, I've prayed in Christ's name. Therefore, I've filled in the amount on the blank check and he should now give me uh, what I want. That's not what it means to pray in Christ's name. Listen to what we read in 1 John 5, 2. Now, this is the confidence. This is the confidence, the assurance that we have toward God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. To pray in Christ's name is to pray in faith. To pray in Christ's name is to pray according to God's will. I get, I get really disturbed, um, annoyed at times as well, rightly or wrongly, by the name it and claim it movement. I really do. Because they are wreaking such havoc among God's people. Uh, that if I, if, I, if I just really, 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 really believe it, have faith, whatever that means, I don't know. Then, I can, then God will hear me. God will answer. And that uh, all I need to do is believe it. All I need to do is name it. All I need to do is claim it. If I don't get it, well, it means I don't have enough faith. But if I have enough faith, I have this certainty that he will give it to me. I'm going to, I'm going to be blunt, astoundingly blunt. Friends, that is not Christianity. There's another word for that. That is paganism. It's magic. God is a genie trapped in a bottle. And if I rub it hard enough, poof, out he'll come and give me what I want. There's some sort of electric current. And if I just get plugged into God, ooh yeah, I can get what I want. It's rubbish. And it is dangerous. And it is ruining the faith of countless believers, disrupting the church of God, and throwing mud on the name of Christ. To pray in Christ's name is to pray in faith. And it is to pray according to God's Will. What does it mean to pray in accordance with God's will? It means two things. First, it means we pray for obedience. To submit to what God decreed. Can I say, can I say like Job, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's praying in faith. That's praying in Christ's name. That's praying according to the will of God. It's a truly mean what we sang here last Lord's Day when peace like a river 
attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That is praying in Christ's name. That is a prayer of faith. That is praying according to God's will. Secondly, when we pray according to God's will, we pray for obedience to obey not merely what God decrees, but what God commands. Commands us to be holy. Anybody here do that? Commands us to love our wives as Christ loves the church. Commands us to be humble. Commands us to declare His glory and excellencies to the, to, to the nations. He commands us to put away sin and mortify sin, commandment upon commandment, for which we in and of ourselves and our own flesh are not able, are not worthy, but we have the sure and certain promise that if we come asking in Christ's name, help me, Lord, He will answer. It's a guarantee. It is a promise that as we seek Him out in prayer in the quiet of our closets or wherever it is we pray, that as we pray for, for this humility to submit to His sovereign will, the will of His decree, that He will answer, He will strengthen us, He will enable us to say as the Lord Jesus said, not my will, but Thine be done. And we have this great and awesome assurance that as we struggle with sin, as we hear this command and that command, and we know we're not up to it in and of ourselves, that if we come in humility before the throne of grace, pleading with our Lord and Savior, we have this sure and certain word, this sure and certain promise that He will do it. Verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What an encouragement. Listen to this brief sentence from J.C. Ryle. Whatever is really good for our souls. That's the qualifier. Whatever is really good for our souls. Does not say whatever I want. Whatever I dream of. No. Whatever is really good for our souls. We need not doubt we shall have. If we ask. In Christ's name. Whether you realize it or not, that's another key sitting in your pocket this morning. It's another promise from the lips of Christ Himself that if we come to Him, we have this certainty that not only does He hear us, but He answers in accordance with infinite power and wisdom. Three promises, brothers and sisters. Our Lord and Savior promises to come for us. Christ promises to do great works through us. And Christ promises to answer our prayers. Now, it would be entirely misleading of me this morning if I did not pause for a moment to say, to affirm, that there is a huge qualifier in all of this, isn't there? Christ makes it clear in those first 12 verses He culminates in verse 12, the 12th verse, where he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Yes, Christ is is coming for his own. He promises to come for us. Who? Those who believe in him. 
Yes, it's true. Christ promises to do great and glorious works through us. Who? Those who believe in him. Yes, Christ promises to answer our prayers. Whose prayers? Those who believe in him. Please understand, friend, if you are not a believer in Christ, if you are not a Christian, you are on the outside looking in. Nothing. Absolutely nothing of what I have said this morning has any relation to you whatsoever. These promises are not for you. The Lord Jesus is not coming again for you. The Lord Jesus does not promise to do great works through you. The Lord Jesus does not answer your prayers. I have heard on occasion believers even saying to unbelievers, well, you should pray about that. Who, who are we encouraging to pray to? An unbeliever can't pray. Two necessary requirements for prayer. There must be faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. There must be a mediator. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. For the unbeliever, there is nothing but deafening silence from the throne of God. And that deafening silence continues until that prayer is uttered. The only prayer that matters for that unbeliever, that cry of repentance and turning to the Lord Jesus in faith. These promises are not for the unbeliever. There is no promise. There is no assurance of, of heaven. I was watching uh, Ray, Ray Comfort. You're familiar with Ray Comfort, the way of the master. He was on the, the television yesterday afternoon and I was watching this and Fascinated as he was interacting in this uh, in this open square with a number of individuals and uh, asking question after question and and uh, a question he kept going back to was do you, do you believe in heaven and hell do you believe in heaven well yeah sure I believe in heaven it's a place you know good people are going to and I'm good we're all going to do you believe in hell well I think hell is just sort of hell on earth it's what you make it so yes heaven for everybody hell for nobody just experiences you go through in this life friend hell is as real as heaven. And if Christ is not coming for you to take you to heaven, guess where he is coming for you to take you? We don't talk about it a lot today. Certainly not in polite company. Hell is real. The Bible makes it clear that in hell, the sinner loses all the comfort of friends and possessions. Ecclesiastes 5.15, as he came from his mother's womb, He shall go again naked as he came. No hobbies in hell. No art collection in hell. No careers in hell. No enjoyment of spouse and siblings and family members in hell. The individual language is for all eternity void of any comforts that he had in his earthly sojourn. In hell the sinner loses God. Matthew 25, 41. Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And they lose out on the Lord of life, the Lord of grace, the Lord of glory, the Lord of light, the Lord of lords. For all eternity, separated, cut off from all that is good. In hell, the sinner gains the most intense pain imaginable. Revelation 14, 11. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest 
day or night. Nothing pleasant about that. But I don't want anybody leaving here this morning outside of Christ, having heard these promises and thinking in some way, oh, this is some crutch that can help me in life or something that will see me on the way or or something that I can derive a warm fuzzy from or start feeling good about. These promises, friend, if you are not a Christian, are not for you. Again, you are on the outside looking in. And God's message to you is clear. It is simple. It is echoed throughout the centuries. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. These promises are for Christ's own. These promises are for Christ's people. And oh, that we as believers, children of God, would understand that we're walking around with this key in our pockets. And as we struggle along this way and struggle along that way, and as giant despair sneaks up on us and gets us once in a while and throws us into Doubting Castle, that we would call to mind, that we would think, that we would consider, in the, following the example of Paul, this promise, these promises, and all that God has prepared for those who trust in Him. Let me conclude with those words from Spurgeon. You'll find them on the bottom of, uh, of the sermon outline. Great little paragraph. God never gives his children a promise which he does not intend them to use. There are some promises in the Bible which I have never yet used, but I am well assured that there will come times of trial and trouble when I shall find that that poor despised promise, which I thought was never meant for me, will be the only one on which I can Oh, the promises of our God, an unchanging God, and a faithful God throughout all generations. Our God, we do conclude uh, this morning by declaring your glory, by announcing our soul's delight in you, and by proclaiming the excellencies of your Son, the Lord Jesus, our Savior. And we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the portion we've read and considered this morning. Thank you for what we have gleaned from it. We do pray that the helper, the Holy Spirit, will aid us in taking to heart uh, these promises of which we have spoken this day. I think in particular of the return of the Lord Jesus whether it be on that day that we die or should it be even in our lifetime, and how our hearts are warmed, how our hearts well up in speculation and in anticipation. And we do pray, our Father, that you might help us to fix our eyes on glory and may it cause us to walk in a manner that pleases you at present. And we do ask it in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.